Welcome to The Way Home Podcast, where we feature conversations on church, community, and culture. I'm your host, Dan Darling. Today, our conversation is with Scott Sauls. Scott is the senior pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church here in Nashville. Before coming here, Scott was a lead and preaching pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City with Tim Keller. He was also the founding pastor of churches in Kansas City and St. Louis. Uh, Scott is a very interesting guy, very thoughtful guy, and he stopped by the studio today to talk about his brand new book, Jesus Outside the Lines, A Way Forward for Those Who Are Tired of Taking Sides. And one of the things Scott and I talked about, the main thing we talked about was Christians and cultural engagement. We're entering kind of a new era where post-Christian era, as many have said. And so how should Christians react as a, as a minority in this culture? How can we speak the truth and also speak love? And Scott has a great perspective on that. Before we get to our conversation, though, I want to mention an initiative of ERLC, Leland House Press, and specifically my ebook, Engage, Maintaining a Christian Witness Online. In this book, we discuss what does it look like to have a Christian a presence online, to be Christian in the way we interact on social media, on Facebook. And this really goes well with the conversation we're going to have here with Scott Sauls. Uh, we'll have links to this and also about this conversation on my page, danieldarling.com, if you click on the podcast page. But for now, let's join our conversation with Scott Sauls. Well, I'm glad to have my friend Scott Sauls today here in the studio uh, on the Way Home podcast. Uh, Scott is pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church here in Nashville. Welcome, Scott. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. So we're going to talk about your brand new book, which is out and available, uh, Jesus Outside the Lines. Uh, this is your first book, right? Yes, that's correct. And so maybe before we start, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, You know how you came to Nashville? Uh, to your church, and and then maybe kind of what inspired you to write this book. Sure. Uh, you know, the short story is that uh, before Nashville, we were in New York City for five years, uh, where I worked uh, with Tim Keller at mm -hmm. Redeemer, uh, and um, you know, we received a phone call and were engaged in a conversation about Nashville, which is a city that's in transition, uh, that that's becoming more and more like the city that we came from, and and uh, there was a church here that that was looking for leadership for sort of the next chapter of Nashville, and. We ended up here uh, about three years ago, uh, this past week, about three years. So when you think of, I, I want to just think about your transition from New York City to Nashville. Has that been, you know, a big culture shock, a big change, or has there been a lot of similarities? Uh, there have actually, uh, and a lot of people are surprised when I say this, been, been a lot more similarities than differences uh, in that Nashville, uh, not unlike New York, is is a culture-making city with um, you know all sorts of different uh, expressions of creativity and industry and influence and healthcare and education um, you know the the old you know sort of descriptor of Nashville the Athens of the South which originally just had to do with education yeah but yeah I think Nashville is really growing even more fully into that into that designation as the cultural epicenter that it that it's becoming. Um, in fact, the last uh, conversation I had with Tim Keller when, before we came here was, you know, you know, you're going to Nashville from Nashville's future. Um, <laughs> you know, and he's, he's somebody who studies cities and his son went to Vanderbilt and uh, he's got a sister-in-law here. And so, um, you know, that was encouraging just to know that, that, 
you know, we could sort of take, uh, you know, what we'd, we'd learned and grown in there at Redeemer and, and sort of reimagine that kind of expression here in a new city. So when I'm looking at your book, Jesus Outside the Lines, um, A Way Forward for Those Who Are Tired of Taking Sides, it seems like this book was born out of just kind of your own frustration or observation of kind of what you know, what you're seeing in terms of Christian cultural engagement. Would that be a, a fair assessment? Yeah, I, I would I would use the word observation rather than than frustration. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't really feel like I have an axe to grind. Right. Uh, I just think that that um, we live in a culture, cultural moment right now where where the Christian church has an opportunity and that opportunity seems like it's going to increase to be more of a minority than uh, a perceived majority, uh, which you know historically has always been good for the growth and flourishing of the kingdom of God. Uh, on earth. Uh, Christianity has always done better as a sort of countercultural, life-giving minority than it has a uh, power majority, so to speak. And so, so uh, I feel like a, you know, this book is an attempt to mm-hmm. speak into that and, and yeah. maybe give Christians an opportunity to maybe rethink how we engage the contested issues of our day. Uh, and, and hopefully give a picture to people who aren't Christians and who don't believe as we do of an expression of Christianity that is hopefully true to to who Christ was and how he conducted ministry in the public you know marketplace of ideas and hopefully can have some impact on somebody. One of the things I really enjoyed about reading this book is that you're advocating for a kind of different kind of engagement, but you're not advocating disengagement. You're not saying Christians need to just kind of Stop being engaged in cultural issues, stop being involved in, in, in sort of government and things at all levels. But you're, it seems like you're advocating a different kind of engagement. Is that true? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, um, you know, that's, that's fair. I mean, we're, we're, you know, we're given a picture in the New Testament mm-hmm. of, of, of two different philosophies of how to engage culture. You've got the Pharisees uh, on the one hand who uh, engaged Rome by disengaging Rome and, mm-hmm. and, and, um, sort of forming their own, you know, religious enclaves and and tribal identity separate from culture, and 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 then you have the Sadducees on the other hand who uh, assimilated into culture and became indistinguishable from the culture. And uh, I think that you know it's a losing proposition either way you go if you go the direction of the the Pharisees and separate completely or the direction of the Sadducees and assimilate completely into the culture, you miss the opportunity to be salt and light, um, speaking the truth and not not backing down at all from from the truth, but doing so in love and in a way that's engaging. And and um, like Madeline Lingle uh, you know, said, drawing people to Christ by showing them a light so lovely that they must ask the source of it. They feel like they have to ask what the source of it is. And so I think there's a life-giving way that we can engage issues without compromising our beliefs at all. And you did not shy away from some very difficult issues in the book, too. I mean, you you, you talk about uh, sexuality, you talk about the life issue, you talk about the importance of church and why you still are pro-church and believe in, in the gathering of God's people. I kind of have to be. It's, yeah, it's you're a pastor. Job, yeah, right? yeah, exactly. But also you talk about the doctrine of hell, which um, it didn't surprise me. You know, I was pleasantly surprised to see that you are willing to tackle what's kind of an unpopular truth. Um, and so it seems to me what, that you're, you, know, you, would, you would tell somebody 
Well, let's talk first about the kind of the sexuality issue that you, you raise here um, about the issue of homosexuality, very controversial. Why did you want to include that in this book, and why do you feel it's still important to speak into that? Because everybody thinks it's important right now. I mean, it's it's what everybody's talking about in in society, particularly Western, predominantly Caucasian society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's a significant subject. Uh, politically and also, you know, in in the churches and and in the religious square and even within evangelicalism, you've mm-hmm. got um, sort of this emerging new movement uh, among some who who you know self-identify as evangelicals but are rethinking this issue. So yeah, absolutely, I felt like it was important to you know speak on it in in the book and dedicate a, a chapter to it. Why are you still hopeful about the church? I I think as I was telling you off air, you know, as I was reading through the book, I, I love just, I love the book, uh, but your chapter on the church really was, I think, one of my favorites. Mm. You talk about your love for the body of Christ. Why is that? Uh, my love for the body of Christ, um, my belief in the body of Christ is, is based on what Christ says about the church, and, mm. and that is that he's going to build it, and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it, that... That he's her bridegroom and she is his bride. That 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 he is the church's beloved and she is his beloved. And and you know, in no way do we see um, you know any expression of of a churchless Christianity emerging in the biblical vision of of the kingdom of God. You know, the church is right there in, in the center. And and you know, the argument is often made by those who are you know would would. Would maybe be advocates, uh, Christians, you know, genuine believing people who are frustrated and, and in many ways legitimately so with with how you know their experience of the local church mm-hmm. has fallen way short of of what they see as the ideal in the scriptures, and they're, they're they're you know advocating for maybe going out of the church to to find that experience and maybe create that experience without the institutional trappings and so to speak and. And you know, I think that's an important voice and an important critique to listen to in order to reform and grow and, and become more and more what the church is supposed to be. But if you, if you look at the New Testament's vision and expression of the New Testament church, I mean, you think about you know what what was the church in the New Testament that got the most press, that got the most exposure, that had the longest letters written to it? It was the church at Corinth, which mm-hmm. was a dysfunctional mess where you know you've got adultery, you've got a guy who's having an affair publicly uh, with his you know stepmother, and mm-hmm. and and everybody's kind of high fiving each other and laughing about it. It's sort of the punchline at parties, and people are suing each other. I mean, it's 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 a complete disaster of a place and yet Paul, you know, he he doesn't sort of peace out on them. He presses in and and <laughs> and um, he starts with you know, and this is just shocking before he, you know, rebukes him or rebukes them uh, for all their inconsistencies. He starts out, you know, reminding them that they're the beloved of God, that he calls them saints and set apart and brothers and, and you know, he uses all this familial language with Corinth before he Starts to point out all the different ways that they're broken and you know in sin and you know even the love chapter which you know we have read at weddings and such that was that's actually one of the sharpest rebukes in the Bible because you know all the attributes of love were everything that the Corinthians were not and so um, you know Bonhoeffer once said that that you know those who love 
their dream of the Christian community or their dream of what the Christian Christian community should look like more than they love the Christian community itself as it is and and, and where God has it actually become destroyers of, of, of that Christian community. And Bonhoeffer goes on to say, what may appear weak and trifling to us may actually be great and magnificent to God. And actually, it is great and magnificent to God because we know what his vision for the church is. He's going to be faithful to complete what he started. And we're incomplete works in progress. So That's really good. You know, and one of the things I love that you put in there, and I've said this myself sometime, we talk a lot about, we need to go back to the New Testament church. And and you're saying, okay, which one? Uh, the one in Corinth that was really messed up? Or like, we have this sort of... The Jerusalem church <laughs> yeah. that had a racism issue. Exactly, and, you know, yeah. It, I mean, it's we have this sort of unrealistic ideal, and I wonder too if people hold the church to a higher standard they hold themselves, right? I mean, they want, you know, if there's any sign of imperfection that they want to flee uh, the church. So I think that was one of the one of the great chapters. The, the the other feature of this book that I think is really unique and really good is that you really encourage people to embrace tensions instead of taking sides. So, for instance, your chapter on do we have to be for the unborn? Or for the poor. And you're saying, why can't we be for both? Can you unpack that a little bit? I think in any contested issue, especially when it's contested in such a heated way, I think we have to, wherever we fall you know, in the discussion or in the debate, we have to take a step back and remember the words of, of Martin Luther King Jr., who um, you know, if there ever, ever was an authority uh, on the subject of justice and injustice, it was him. When he said, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And, um, you know, this is just an observation, um, and people might disagree with me on this because people feel so strongly about this issue. But, you know, on the, if you look at, you know, whether you're on the side of, of, of choice or on the side of life in, in this debate, um, there seems to be so much uh, inconsistency and unwillingness to advocate for the weak human being on the other side of the equation, no matter what your position is. So if you're in support of a woman's right to do whatever she wants with her own body, you've got to ask if, if you're going to be intellectually honest, logically consistent, you've got to ask about all the babies in the womb who are girls. You know, they're, they're not given any right to decide, right? Um, so it, it, at best, it's an it's inconsistent position that, that, that does not, that's not a consistently pro-female ethic. On the other side, if, you, if you're, you know, zealous in defense of, of, of the child in the womb, which, which is, of course we should be. I mean, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. Before we were born, the Lord set us apart. You know, th- those sorts of things, it's, it's all there in the scriptures that, that life begins at conception. It's, it's fully human as soon as sperm and egg come together, just as you and I are human being uh, right now. No argument with respect to, to what the scriptures teach on that. But we've got to ask ourselves, those of us who are pro-life for the unborn, is our ethic of life consistent? Do we actually believe and, and embrace and, and, and give ourselves 
for the sanctity of life across the board? Uh, do we pour the same amount of energy into advocating for the weak, the poor, the widows, the orphans, uh, and so on? And, and you know, here you got, you know, a great example is C. Everett Koop, right? I mean, you guys are sort of in the world of politics. Yeah. And, you know, C. Everett Koop was, uh, you know, Surgeon General under Ronald Reagan. And, um, you know, by the end of his tenure, nobody liked him because nobody knew what to do with him because— right. You know, the, the progressives wanted to keep him out because he was a public, you know, sort of champion for pro-life, right, um, from the very beginning based on his, you know, Christian convictions. And he and Francis Schaeffer wrote, you know, Whatever Happened to the Human Race about right. that very issue. And then he turns around when, when the AIDS epidemic comes into play. And, and, and everybody thinks that a, the AIDS epidemic is just, uh, you know, something that, that, that gay men are, are afflicted with at that point in time. And what C.F. Coop does uh, with his position, with his resources, with taxpayer dollars, is based also on his Christian convictions, mm -hmm. is that he is going to use and leverage his position to fight AIDS uh, because, because of... of of what it's doing to a community of people who don't agree with him, yeah, uh, you know, and and to 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 me, and I think to anyone that that should be a picture of a consistent ethic of life that 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 we don't just defend um, those that we're most interested in in an equation, but we look for justice, you know, and and work for justice everywhere we see a potential injustice and and a potential form of brokenness. We, we don't hear a whole lot of pro-life people talking about the fact that over 50% of the women who go in for abortions go in because they're terrified, not, not because you know they're going to be proud of what they've done. They go in because they're terrified because over 50% of them live below the poverty line. Mm. Uh, and many of them are told by their significant other, whether it's a husband or a boyfriend, the father of the child, if you don't do this, you'll never see me again. Uh, many of them are told, uh, you know, especially more affluent suburban girls, they're told, um, you know, that they're going to be kicked out of the house You're by their parents, by yeah. their parents, if, yeah. if, if they don't deal with this and make it go away. And so we've got to ask ourselves, what does it mean for us to, to help uh, you know, partner in 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 relieving that pressure off of women, and and to 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 demonstrate not just to say, but to demonstrate that there is a safety net. Um, that 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 yes, we will say that 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 you know you shall not kill, because that's that's the truth. Mm -hmm. um, and 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 we will also say that that you know, like Dr. King says, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. So we're going to advocate for the flourishing of that person. That, that that we're you know encouraging very loudly to to go through with this pregnancy because it's 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 a human life and so we've got to be consistent um, and and that's that's one of the things that that really was encouraging about what you're doing here in this book is that that the really it seems like you're the, the Christian concept of the imago Dei really runs through this that rather than forming our convictions based on our political ideologies and kind of letting that guide you're saying. Let let our concept of the Imago Dei that everyone's created in the image of God guide it. So sometimes that makes us conservative because that means that we're we're pro life, right? But it also makes us think uh, strongly about people that are in grinding poverty, people who um, you know the immigrant and and all sorts of things. And it in some ways it kind of uh, explodes our our categories a little bit, does it not? Does well. That's what Jesus does, doesn't he? Yeah, he does. Yeah, and so I, I think, I think that concept that really runs strongly through here. I think is going to really challenge people. One other thought I, I wanted to ask you too is that 
you really, you don't advocate, as I said before, disengagement, but really a new kind of engagement. And I think if you could speak a little bit to this idea that sometimes we have as evangelicals that we can either speak the truth to the culture or we can be civil, but we can't do both. Uh, And you're saying that the scripture offers us a way to do both. I wouldn't say it offers a way to do both. It insists on Mm -hmm. doing both. Um, You know, you asked a question a while ago, you know, why did you write this book? You know, what what were you thinking? Has this been on your mind for a while? And and I I think that, um, you know, hopefully the value of a book like this and others like it um, is that 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 will that that it will be able to to move us forward from from what's currently going on in the culture on contested issues. Like even Slate, uh, you know, came out recently with a piece called "The Year of Outrage." 2014 is the year of outrage, and the subtitle was "Everything That We Got Mad About in 2014." And then, I saw and then that. yeah, there's like 11 essays from different yeah. perspectives about why everybody's mad. Yeah, uh, The Atlantic, Emma Green in The Atlantic. Uh, recently wrote another piece called Taming Christian Outrage. And, and you know, she's addressing how, you yeah. know, Christians come in and, you know, rather than, rather than disarming, uh, you know, the, the, the outrage, we throw fuel to the fire. Uh, a former president said recently that the one remaining bigotry that exists in modern, modern society is that none of us wants to be around anyone who disagrees with us. And, and, and I, I think it's, Pretty self-evident that it's it's unproductive mm-hmm. to just point our fingers at other people. Just like you know, we're not going to listen to somebody who's just pointing their fingers at us, right? We're just going right. to kind of dismiss that voice and get away from it as quickly as we can. So, I love what Tim Keller says about um, about what he calls true tolerance. He says, you know, tolerance is not about abandoning our convictions, but 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 rather it's how our convictions lead us to treat people who disagree with us. And so the more deeply enmeshed we are in the truth of Jesus, mm-hmm. the less offended and the less offensive we will be uh, among those who disagree with us. And it, and it us, seems so. like it seems like social media hey, yeah, obviously is a great tool. You and I both are on social media. We're active, blogging, but they also can be dangerous weapons if they're not wielded well. I mean, what is it about this age of digital communication that just kind of brings out the worst in us? I mean, what is it about that? Well, there's a journalist uh, named Tim, I think you pronounce his name Kreider, maybe Kreider. I write about him in the introduction. Uh, he calls it outrage porn. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that's a good word to use that that it's it, it's porno it's a it's a different form of pornography if you mm-hmm. think about what pornography is it's it's objectification of mm-hmm. another human being it's putting another human being in a category it's it's seeking a, a personal rush at the expense of a person who bears the image of God without making any commitment whatsoever to that person mm-hmm. and and we're free to do that uh, in in the digital you know, hemisphere. Do you, do you think sometimes that Christians compartmentalize too? So, you know, they, they forget that the person they are on Facebook is really who they are, you know? So you have a Christian, you're supposed to have a Christian witness, but then it's like, well, I'm on Facebook. It doesn't count right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you think that happens? So out of the keyboard, the, the, you know, <laughs> or out of the heart, the keyboard speaks or yeah. something like that. 
yeah, I mean, we, we are who we are, right? And, and um, you know, I think there's something to be said for what, what you, just, you just said, that we are most true to who we are in those environments where we feel the least amount of social pressure, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're, you're not all that accountable online. Mm-hmm. You can blog about anything you want from 400 miles away from the person you're critiquing <laughs> that you've never met and that you've never had a conversation with and that you've never asked clarifying questions of them about their positions. Um, you know, you can, you've, you're at liberty to say whatever you want. And, and you know, our true colors come out in those environments where we're less, in, less accountable, mm-hmm. I, I think, because so, there's less pressure. So um, you're, you're a pastor and father and... I just want to ask you a couple of questions. Like, how are you, you know, as, as you're thinking through your, your role as a pastor, uh, how, how are you co- coaching and counseling church leaders, leaders in your church, you know, church leaders outside of your church on how to engage in this age uh, in terms of how to engage these kind of controversial issues that come up? Yeah. What, are, what are some things that you're... It's interesting. That's a, that's a real-time question because I, I just came here from a, from a lunch with... Um, with one of our, uh, a couple of our staff members, and we're talking mm-hmm. about, you know, what it looks like to engage Nashville, you know, pe- people who don't mm-hmm. see things as we do and who don't share a Christian worldview. And, you know, we're talking about what will it look like to, to put public conversations together where, where we invite people to the table uh, who see things radically differently than we do, people who don't believe in the existence of God, people who... Um, you know, don't believe that Christ rose from the dead. You know, people who you know come from various points of view, and 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 let's have a conversation where where also the, the Christian point of view is represented, much like Paul on Mars Hill in the Areopagus in Acts seventeen, and and you know we ask the question, what would be the win? You know, what would be what would we be able to you know, look at and say this? Um, this was fruitful, and the conclusion that we drew uh, came from the rich ruler uh, encounter uh, with mm-hmm. Jesus, where you know, you know, anybody who knows the story knows that, that that Christ invited the rich ruler to come and follow him, and the rich ruler did not, and and he started to walk the other direction. And it says in the text, the first observation the gospel writer makes is that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the second observation the gospel writer makes is that the man walked away sad. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and so there's, there's, there's some kind of dynamic going on there where it's, it's so, so clear that, 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 that Christians, you know, that Christ and hopefully Christians in our day and time can, can, can find a way to have these conversations on contested issues uh, and, and and accomplish a couple of things. Number one, hold to our convictions and communicate them clearly. Hold to, to what the scriptures teach and communicate them clearly. Uh, and 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 number two, do it in such a way that 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 we remain friends mm-hmm. with people who don't agree with us. Now the exception is going to be the same kind of people who were offended by Jesus, right, which tended to be hostile religious people uh, who were compelled by fear. But, but, but the secular people, um, unless they were, you know, power people like Pilate who, who felt threatened by Jesus' movement, but, but the general sort of secular person, the, the tax collectors, the sinners, the gluttons, the drunks, the pimps, the prostitutes, they didn't take offense at Jesus. They didn't always get behind him. Um, but 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 they didn't take offense at him. They they actually wanted to listen to him because 
you know, the content of what he taught was compelling, but 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 in addition to that, he loved them. Mm-hmm. And and he he was their friend. He welcomed them and ate with them. And and so we got to recapture that. It seems like you you know, when I hear you speak that, you know, a lot of people are lamenting the the kind of post-Christian age that we're in and kind of the collapse of the sort of Bible belt civil religion. But you're almost saying that there's a new upper, fresh opportunity for us to engage gauge this world with the gospel. Uh, talk about about that. I mean, you come from, prior to your pastorate here, you come from Redeemer Presbyterian in New York City with Tim Keller, who obviously has a you know pretty well-known engagement of engaging the city, not withdrawing. And so how do you engage um, and love your city, speak into those very critical issues that affect the human flourishing of the city, some which are controversial, some which are not? How do you do that and also uh, do it in a way that uh, honors who people are, even people that disagree with you. Yeah, I think I think Paul gives us a a really great example of that in Acts chapter seventeen, where he walks into Athens, and there's a there's an altar to an unknown god, uh, and everybody has their own idea of of who that god is or whether or not that god exists, and they're all just sort of pontificating what their view is and what their philosophy is. Paul goes in, and, and it says that he's he's um, you know the the Greek uh, term, the the New Testament Greek term means that he was out. It says that he was outraged, um, but he did not. Ex- he wasn't outraged against these people. He was outraged for them. He was outraged uh, out of grief for 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 what their beliefs would lead to, uh, as they were groping after truth. But what does he do? He goes in to this idolatrous, this patently idolatrous, idolatrous environment, and the very first thing he says to them is, men of Athens, I perceive that you're very religious. You know, he, he, he offers them a compliment. He throws them uh, a, a, an olive branch and says, look, I see that you're seeking for meaning, for truth, and for beauty, because that's what, what a religious heart does. It's, mm-hmm. in, it's seeking truth, beauty, and meaning, and that's a good thing, and that's a good place to start. And he, he gets to the you know, you know the confrontation, and even that's very gentle. But the way that he gets there is he quotes uh, their Stoic and Epicurean philosophers and poets. Stoicism and Epicureanism were very destructive, very toxic worldviews, mm-hmm. right? But he is cherry-picking uh, the truth of God that can be found even within those broken systems of philosophy. And, and, and he's quoting them from memory in an affirming way, from memory in an affirming way, which means he's reading their stuff, he's getting into their world, he's not just exegeting the scriptures, he's also exegeting the culture, mm-hmm. and, and he's like Spurgeon, you know, Bible in the left hand, newspaper in the right, and he's, he's taking the truth from the credible voices in their own culture and from their own point of view, because all truth comes from God regardless of the conduit. He's so brilliant in that way. And, 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 and that's the pathway he takes toward you know, communicating about the God who can be known. And, and it's, it's stunning. He never quotes a single scripture mm-hmm. in that entire dialogue, and yet everything he says is, is straight from the truth of scripture. Uh, but, he, but he packages it in the language of the hearers and taking every opportunity he can to find whatever those voices that are regarded as credible voices by them. And, and, and he's saying, let's take what your own poets have said and let's start there. And, and what that communicates, besides you know a masterful understanding of the people that he's talking about, which suggests that he's really listened to them before he talks mm-hmm. to them, uh, is that he respects them, mm. and 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 he honors their dignity, um, and 
and doesn't feel any pressure to fix them. You know, there was one person from the Areopagus that, that it says was actually converted to Christ, and 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 you know, he didn't you know run away writing you know blog grenades about the people who didn't listen to <laughs> Facebook him, you know? post. He just, yeah, <laughs> he took what the Lord gave, you know, yeah. and and that's and good. planted a church out of it. Right? That's good. So, yeah, and you know what's interesting is. You know, Paul doesn't come in. I think you know he doesn't come in intimidated by them. It seems to me that most outrage that Christians express is kind of born out of a fear and kind of intimidation. But if we know the Christian story, we know that Christ is sovereign and Lord, and He's triumphant. Then we can engage in that winsome and wonderful way. But I, I appreciate you joining me, uh, Scott. This is a, a great book, Jesus Outside the Lines. I encourage people to go and get it. We'll have all the information on on the website, on the show notes. But really, thank you for stopping by and, and encouraged about your ministry here in Nashville. Thanks, Daniel. Appreciate it. Well, I want to thank my friend Scott Sauls for that great conversation. I encourage you to get his book, Jesus Outside the Lines. If you enjoyed this conversation, I want to encourage you to let us know by emailing us at wayhome at erlc.com, or better yet, write a review on iTunes. That really helps get the word out about this podcast. If you're interested in other conversations uh, with Christian leaders, uh, such as Matt Chandler, Tony Marita, Molly Hemingway, Karen Swallow Pryor, and others, check out the podcast page on danieldarling.com. You can also find information about Leland House Press and my new ebook, Engage, Maintaining a Christian Witness Online. The Way Home Podcast is produced and recorded by Gary Lancaster and assisted by Marie Delph. Thank you for listening to The Way Home Podcast. Mm-hmm.